podcast, a skeptical and sarcastic evaluation of quacks, frauds, and charlatans. Uh, uh, oops, I'm sorry. I mean, alternative and complementary medicine. This podcast is done on December 24th, and it's going to cover the topic of how to recognize quackery. Rock 2 is a side project by Pusware LLC, the publisher of the Persiflazer's Annotated Compendium of Infectious Disease Facts, Opinion, and Dogma your uber-hyperlinked electronic guide to infectious disease. Available at puswear.com where you will find the Persiflazers podcast, a bi-weekly review of infectious diseases, CMB accredited. If you do a search of podcasts in medicine, the bulk of results will point you to the many sites on complementary and alternative medicine, most of which are, well, garbage. There is always the excellent Quack Watch, which is the source of things quackery. And there are a few skeptical sites, such as the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, Skepticality, and Skeptoid being the best I have found to date. But there is a lack of podcasts that look skeptically at alternative medicine. Point of Inquiry always says they're going to, but I've only heard, I believe, one or two on alternative medicine. It's a shame, for to judge from my medical school and my neck of the woods, critical thinking and alternative medicine do not seem to go together. So you are in luck. I'm an infectious disease doctor with a long interest in things skeptical, and I have been honing my podcast skills for a couple of years with my infectious disease podcasts, available at pusware.com for you all who are interested. So I've decided to branch out my podcasting into another area of my life in medicine that interests me, and have embarked on what will be a short series of podcasts covering various aspects of alternative medicine. Yeah, right, short. Like an infectious disease doctor can not stop talking. But as Baroque Spinoza said, quote, I have made a ceaseless effort not to ridicule, not to bewail, nor to scorn human actions, but to understand them, end quote. This does not apply to me. Ridicule and scorn are two of my favorite approaches to alternative medicine. It is all so stupid and requires a healthy dose of what I like to call evidence-based ridicule. And as you listen to these podcasts, I think you too shall see why. As Thomas Jefferson said in a different context, ridicule is the only weapon that can be used against unintelligible propositions. Ideas must be distinct before reason can act upon them. Now, if you're hearing this and you wish you had an MP3 rather than this MP4, those are also now available on my website in my .mac public folder. References for the show are on the show notes page, and old podcasts are archived there as well. For reasons that I do not fully comprehend, all the podcasts are not on the iTunes feed. Before I get on to my vicious screed, I would like to thank the gang at Skeptic's Guide to the Universe for the interview. My Quackcast downloads jumped up at least ten times as a result of that podcast, and I made it, however briefly, to number 21 on iTunes, much to the excitement of my kids. I found this out when my 13-year-old yelled at me from the other room, Dad, Dad, you're number 21 on iTunes. The podcast gives me some, however little, aura of cool with my eldest son. Also, I have received actual email now. So far, all of it nice. People, it seems, like a smartass. And as time permits, I will reply. But my life is not yet, I'm afraid to say, complete. I haven't got any hate mail yet. I need hate mail, real hate mail, from a true believer. I need someone for whom a quack therapy had failed. And that I am just a closed-minded, arrogant, authoritarian tool of the medical-industrial complex who doesn't treat diseases, just symptoms. I want that kind of hate mail, like they get at Landover. 
Now don't be nice and be sending me an email calling me names just to make me feel good. I will only feel good if you really, really hate me. And so, now on to the vicious screeds. This podcast is going to cover two topics, like I said. The first is some rules of thumb so you know if some alleged medical intervention is the real deal or not with examples. And the second is some updates on the interesting and dangerous aspects of that quackery known as homeopathy. Touted medical intervention is the real deal or a load of fetid dingo's kidneys. Thank you, hitchhikers. Well, Dr. Robert Park once wrote an essay called The Seven Signs of Bogus Science. He was broadly applying these concepts to pseudoscience of all kinds. Cold fusion, the Loch Ness Monster, Psy, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. No, wait, sorry, that last isn't pseudoscience, but it is mythical nonetheless. I digress, as always, with great bitterness. I would like to take this opportunity to apply these ideas of his more narrowly to medical quackery, where they can help you in the future in assessing quackery that comes your way. I hope in future podcasts to discuss other issues that help to perpetuate quackery, the psychology of belief and logical fallacies. As so much quackery comes from both a lack of critical thinking and a recognition that you, yes, that's you I'm talking about, buddy, does not recognize one's, you again, own suboptimal thought processes. I, of course, do not have this problem thanks to extensive brain training with the discipline of Scientology, PSI, space, ENT, space, O-L-O-G-Y, so I don't get sued, which is the study of reading the minds of large tree creatures in Middle Earth. Now, that's a bad pun. So what are these rules of thumb, the seven steps for recognizing BS? Well, here they are. One, the therapy pitches its claim directly to the media. Two, the discoverer says that a powerful establishment is trying to suppress their work. Three, the scientific effect is always at the very limits of detection. Four, evidence for the discovery is anecdotal. Five, the discoverer says the belief is credible because it has endured for centuries. Six, the discoverer has worked in isolation. And seven, the discoverer must propose new laws of nature to explain an observation. And that's the seven. The thumb that you can use when you do not have time to review the medical literature or the inclination to spend a decade of your life being trained by the medical industrial complex to become a doctor. So let's go over each again, each time with a specific example of quackery. The therapy is pitched directly to the media. Well, given the glut of advertising by, quote, legitimate, unquote, pharmaceutical companies direct to the consumer, this may be a wee bit more difficult to use as a criteria. Here in passing that I am one of those zealots who think big pharmaceutical reps and their advertising represent the biggest impediment to good medical practice currently going. And the medical literature is replete with good evidence of the pernicious evil that occurs when physicians interact with drug reps. Good doctors practice good medicine, but for good doctors to practice bad medicine, it takes an expensive dinner at a steakhouse with a cute pharmaceutical rep. So I have not taken so much as a pen in 20 years, so my opinions are as pure as Oregon rain. Another digression. But at least with big pharma products, you know if they are backed by legitimate scientific studies by looking it up in the PDR or doing a medline. These drugs have been studied and approved by the FDA. Not so with directly marketed products. TV and radio have no shortage of commercials for supplements that have no supporting data. Male enhancement and weight loss lead the list, but I think airborne is as good example as any. Now this is a product that was created by a second grade teacher. It offers, to quote the website, boost the immune system, 
and perhaps to prevent infections, although this is always implied rather than stated. By some accounts, it sells $100 million a year of product, which is a lot of money. Now, when I think of cutting-edge healthcare research, I don't think of the NIH. I don't think of big pharma. I think of a second-grade teacher. Those are the people that are doing the biomedical research that counts especially when U.S. students were ranked 24th in the world and falling in math and science when compared to the rest of the world. I really think that grade school teachers are the people who are at the forefront of cutting-edge biotech. Now, I know that's an ad hominem attack, but it does have a certain cachet in this society, and I would just like to point out that being created by a second-grade teacher is not necessarily a good reason to buy the product. Well, I quote from the website, each ingredient in airborne formulary has been repeatedly documented in published studies to contribute to a strong, healthy immune system. Additionally, we conducted a study in 2003 that showed airborne had a marked effect on reducing the duration of symptoms. Our medical advisory board members are currently formulating a study that, in addition to the studies in the literature, will further support airborne's immune-boosting properties, end quote. I assume that last sentence was not meant for humorous effect, although I find it quite amusing. But you can't find the study that supports the use of airborne. And according to ABC News, the people who did the study to prove airborne's efficacy is actually a two-man operation that was started up just to do the airborne study. They had no clinic, no scientists, and no doctors. And the man who ran things said he had lots of clinical experience. And he added that he had a degree from Indiana University, but the school says he never graduated. It's like the old duck's breath. He has a degree in science. But what's in Airborne? When you look at the side of the product, it's a famous original formula created by a school teacher. It basically has a hodgepodge of vitamins, herbal extracts, and amino acids. When you look at the list of things on the list, there is only zinc, which as a lodgings but not as an effervescent tablet that has been shown to be effective in decreasing cold symptoms. But none of the other things on the list have shown good efficacy in preventing or treating infectious diseases. And of course, when forced to be honest, the package insert says, quote, These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease, even though everything on the product says it's intended to diagnose, treat, cure, and prevent any disease. But Oprah likes it, so it must be good. And there is lots of advertising, but there are no clinical trials in reputable medical journals to show efficacy of this product. And those magic words... Immune boosting, healthy immune system. This whole concept of boosting the immune system baffles me. The immune system is not a bicep that you can build up by lifting weights and taking steroids. It's an amazingly complex series of interacting proteins and cells, and there's no way that you can measure a boosted immune system in a meaningful way. But it is so vague and it sounds so good and beneficial that it doesn't matter that it cannot be proved or disproved. Now, most deficiencies lead to measurable defects in the immune function, such as white cell function. So yes, the vitamins and minerals in airborne are good for the immune system in a very basic and generic way, just like a good diet is. It's like oxygen. Breathing strengthens the immune system. It boosts the immune system. And if you don't breathe, I bet you your immune system takes a hit.
but I am surprised they don't put oxygen in the bottle as part of the ingredients. That's also crap. Echinacea we've talked about in prior podcasts, but there's nothing there that would have any efficacy against an infectious diseases. Find it in the PDR is probably a load of fetid dingo's kidneys. Two, the discoverer says a powerful establishment is trying to suppress their work. As discussed in prior podcasts, this was true of the chiropractic and AMA in the 1970s when the AMA did try and suppress chiropractic. This, however, has been taken to an art form by Kevin Tudreau in his book, Natural Cures They Don't Want You to Know About. This book will probably be a podcast by itself someday. But his whole shtick is that the powers that be are suppressing medical knowledge to both make you sick and to sell more drugs. For example of the issue here is that Big Pharma does not want to test the their products because when they're proven to be efficacious, people will no longer buy their expensive medications and their profits will suffer. However, Big Pharma now owns most of the supplement companies, so it's win-win for them whether they're proven efficacious or not. Now, I am a member in good standing in the medical industrial complex, and at our quarterly secret meetings, we always agree to let alternative medicine practitioners do what they want. We don't want to suppress alternative medicine. Why? Well, if you go to an alternative practitioner, you're going to get sicker, not better. And in the end, I get to take care of you and make a profit by picking up the pieces. It's like smoking for you is good for my bottom line. And I have to remember I have a 3 o'clock appointment to pass out Marlboros at the local grade school. Number three, the scientific effect is always at the very limit of detection. This is especially true when the quackery has no biologic plausibility. Homeopathy and acupuncture and chiropractic and iridology and chelation therapy are all based on irrational magical thinking. They don't work in part because they can't work. And wishful thinking, to my mind, is not a viable therapeutic modality. So these studies will show effects that are mostly due to the inability to correctly blind the study and remove investigator bias. Also, small numbers of patients usually show significant effects that disappear when larger number of patients are tested. As we have seen in prior podcasts, the better the study, the less the effect, until finally a good study is done, and guess what? The quackery doesn't do diddly. It's a mantra in medicine. You want to have randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled, with large numbers of patients, published in peer-reviewed journals, and reproduced by others. Then and only then can you rely on the data and the therapeutic intervention that you are about to try. Four, evidence for a discovery is anecdotal. A plural of anecdote is anecdotes, not data. There are many biases in memory. We remember hits, not misses. We remember evidence that confirm our bias, and we ignore the contradictory. The emphasis we put on the story of others all conspire to make anecdotes worthless of a medical intervention. I always tell the residents the three most dangerous words in medicine, especially when applied to treatments, are the words, in my experience. And the real problem is that anecdotes in medicine is that they suggest a causality where none exists. I wish I had a nickel for every time someone said they took in airborne and didn't get a cold. That proves nothing. Causality is a very difficult thing to prove, although I will confess I have a very special pair of shoes. 
Ever since I purchased the current pair of shoes that I wear to work each day, I have not had a cold. I wake up some mornings and I think, oh, I might think I might be coming down with something. But I put on my magic shoes and I go through the day without any signs or symptoms of a cold. And I take care of people with infections all day long. Now, my shoes here are no different from any other form of alternative medicine. They have no plausibility, and they lead to faulty causal thinking. However, if you'd like to buy these shoes, they're available for $500. Humans love anecdotes, and unfortunately, a single story for most people is far more impressive than the best clinical trial ever published. Five... The discoverer says that a belief is credible because it has endured for centuries. This is especially true of Chinese medicine. It's been used for thousands of years. It must be fine. Otherwise, why would people use it? Never mind that the life expectancy of the Chinese was less than 40 years until the turn of the last century, when it increased in part due to the use of Western medicine. There is little from 2,000 years ago, or 200 years ago, or even 20 years ago that I would want to use today. I would not wear 2,000-year-old clothes, travel in 2,000-year-old vehicles, use 2,000-year-old heating systems, or grow food with 2,000-year-old farming techniques. Why use 2,000-year-old medical therapies? Unless, of course, I want to get sick and die. Our ancestors were invariably wrong in large part because they did not use the scientific method to understand the world. We can and we should. Quackery has worked in isolation. Many forms of quackery were invented out of whole cloth by one goofball. I know, another ad hominem. Examples include Hanneman and homeopathy, or D.D. Palmer and chiropractic. And their system, like the word of God, is never questioned or altered. Their teaching becomes a holy book, unquestioned and unchanging, despite the data that may or may not modify or contradict it. Now, it is a strength of medicine and sciences that as understanding changes, so does therapy. The problem is sometimes that the therapy is wrong or harmful, but unlike alternative medicine, is it at least amenable to change. This fact that science changes is often used as a criticism, but I think it's one of its strongest facets, and it's also one of the strongest facets of medicine. We learn from our mistakes. Alternative practitioners do not, and they continue to repeat the same mistakes that were started by their discoverer many decades ago. Seventh and final is the discoverer must propose new laws of nature to explain the therapeutic intervention. This one's always been my favorite, and this is all too common in alt-medicine. They all violate what is known about chemistry, physiology, anatomy, and physics. Key, subluxations, etc. are all crap because they all violate what we know about the world. As I have said before, either 500 years of scientific progress is correct or the alternative medicines represent insights into the nature of the universe that will surpass everything we have learned since the Enlightenment. So either they are self-deluded buffoons or future Nobel Prize winners. Guess what I think. Here, by the way, are some words that guarantee the speaker is a quack. Any reference to energy of any kind. Blockages of energy, flowing energy, vibrating energies, harmonic energy, holistic energy. They all sound good, but they don't mean diddly. And energy is not this vague, shimmering cloud that can be tapped into. Thank you, skeptoid. 
In physics, energy is the capacity of a physical system to do work, and you can measure it, and you measure it in joules. You remember the formula. It's the most famous formula in the world, E equals mc squared. Energy, you can define it. Beware of any therapy that maps the entire body to one area. For example, if it maps the entire body to the iris or the foot or bumps on the head. I saw an ad in the Gadget Universe catalog where all the acupuncture sites of 2,000 years of Chinese medicine have now all been mapped onto the palm of the hand, and you can stimulate those to get cured. Anything, as I said above, that talks about strengthening or boosting the immune system. And especially, above all, beware of anyone who claims that the effects of alternative medicine are due to quantum mechanics, especially if they mention quantum entanglement to explain their nonsense. They are blowing smoke up your Heisenberg. Quantum mechanics is a surefire way to intimidate and overwhelm and is never an answer for any system bigger than an electron. I was a physics major in college, and I have spent my time with the concepts of quantum mechanics. It does not apply to the world you and I see and hear. So, those are seven ways with some subtypes to recognize, recognize? I sound like Barbara Walters. Quacks. They are almost 100% sensitive and specific to any new ideas that come your way will help you stay in the reality-based world. And now for some homeopathy updates. A die. Sorry, it's the truth. I wish it wasn't so. But most of the people listening to this are going to die of Western diseases. You're going to die of cancer or heart disease or maybe a car accident or maybe get shot by your spouse. Thank God for the right to arm bears. But most of the world still dies of infectious diseases. And diarrhea is number six in the world. It kills 1.8 million people a year. That's about 5,000 people a day, most of them children, die of diarrhea. So what does this have to do with homeopathy, you ask? Published in the Journal of Alternative and Complementary Medicine, entitled Homeopathy Combination Remedy in the Treatment of Acute Childhood Diarrhea in Honduras. They compared placebo to five common homeopathic preparations in childhood diarrhea. Each was a 30C preparation of the, quote, active ingredient, unquote. They had a variety of causes of the diarrhea. Well, some were parasitical. And they tested the therapy in children ages 5 months to 6 years old. And they found there was no difference between the treatment group and the placebo group. No big deal, right? A nice clinical study that shows the lack of efficacy of homeopathy in childhood diarrhea. Well, this is where I get agitated. I like that term, agitated. My boss recently used it accurately to describe my reaction to another outrage. Agitated, in my mind, conjures up this old, demented man, restrained in a bed with a vest, unshaven, cachectic, his few hairs sticking straight up, pounding his leg in the middle of the night, yelling nonsense at the nurse until he's sedated with some compazine. That's me, an agitated old man. Homeopathy, homeopathy, homeopathy. But this study got me agitated. Why? Well, let's read the study. I mean, really read it. After deconstructing, you're not pissed off as well. Now then, you have no heart, my man. They note the significant morbidity and mortality of childhood diarrhea in the third world and the need for cost-effective interventions. Sounds good to me. And then it goes to Kaka Duty Wawa. 
I want to maintain my non-explicit rating for iTunes. Quote, the search for antidiarrheal therapy should include both allopathic and alternative medicine approaches, end quote. Why? Therapies that should be investigated should be effective, not allopathic or alternative. This is always a false dichotomy put forth by the practitioners of quackery. Quote, homeopathy has been widely practiced around the world, especially in Europe, Latin America, and Asia, end quote. Well, so is fascism and genocide. Popularity is not necessarily a good reason for choosing a medical intervention. Quote, homeopathy is based on the principle that substances that cause certain symptoms in high doses can cure the same symptoms in low doses, end quote. Yeah, stupid, as we have discussed in other podcasts. How can a journal print that without the editor having a seizure eludes me? Oh, wait, it's the Journal of Alternative and Complementary Medicine. Critical thinking and understanding of the real world probably don't go together with this journal. And I do not suppose that High Times is going to print an article on the evils of dope either. Quote, A number of previous studies have shown evidence of the ability of homeopathic therapy to reduce the duration and severity of diarrhea in children in developing countries. End quote. There are three references that support the assertion of homeopathic efficacy. The lead author is the same in each of the references and is the lead author of the article in question. If all the supportive data comes from one researcher, you should be very leery about the validity of the data. Data needs to be reproduced by others before you can truly believe it in the medical sciences. In the methods sections, they state they went to an area of extreme poverty where the patients had no water, sewage, electricity, or garbage, and recluded children in the clinics who had diarrhea between the ages of five months and six years. I would presume, given the conditions, that these patients were not well-educated as well. Now, what makes America great, among other things, is the inalienable right to act like a damn fool, a right I take full advantage of in this podcast. So you want to be a damn fool and take homeopathy? Fine. You are an adult. But a children can't make an informed decision, and I bet their parents can't either. Rich physicians, relatively so, from the University of Washington come to a third world squalor and say, here are some medications to help your children. Are they going to say no? Is anyone besides me appalled? To inflict magic and nonsense on children is unconscionable. You can't treat a potentially fatal illness with hokum. Remember, they gave five different, quote, medications, unquote, at a 30C dilution. What's a 30C dilution? That means it was diluted to 1 times 10 to the minus 60. To find one molecule of the active substance, and that's a molecule, mind you, it would require a container more than 30 billion times the size of the Earth. So they gave this quackery to the poorest of the poor in a third world country. Well, no one died, at least not that they reported, but it sure wasn't for lack of trying. Now, all medical studies have to pass an institutional review board to ensure that they are ethical and safe. It's called an IRB, the IRB at the University of Washington. I guess as long as you are experimenting with nonsense on third world children, and we have way too many people in the third world already, then it's okay. Maybe that snide comment about the popularity of genocide was not so far off the mark. One way to decrease immigration from south of the border is to convince them that homeopathy is the best way to treat their children. 
that U.S. physicians are allowed to experiment using nonsense on impoverished, ill, third-world children shows what I think is a complete breakdown of the IRB process. It didn't work, of course, as mentioned. Quelle surprise. The conclusion, however, is entertaining in itself. Quote, there's also the possibilities that the remedies included in combination therapy counteracted each other in some way, rendering the individual remedies ineffective. This author actually suggests that if you mix five kinds of water together, they can inactivate each other, since that's essentially all they gave. Quote, other factors could be that it had lost its potency because of improper storage or handling before it was administered, end quote. Again, how can you lose potency of water? It's a 1 times 10 to the minus 60 dilution. There's nothing in there to lose its potency. The author actually thinks that substances that are so dilute that you need a homeopathy brouhaha, ha 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 ha, thank you, duck's breath, has been in England. Now, malaria is number eight at killing people in the world. It kills 1.2 million people a year. That's about 3,200 people a day. Again, most of them children. Now, about 2% of people who get malaria will die from it, mostly due to lack of access to therapy, common problem in travelers to the developing world. And if you get malaria, you have a reasonable chance of dying, not the 2% that you get if you're African. Being Westerner, you're probably fat and, and have good nutrition. For Westerners, for example, in 2005, 1,800 Britons went to third world country, developed malaria, and 11 died. Now, the good thing about malaria is that you can take prophylactic medications to prevent it. They are expensive, and they are not without their toxicities, but I still think that they're less expensive and toxic than death. So what they did in England is they sent undercover agents to homeopathic drugstores and asked for malaria prophylaxis. And every homeopathic pharmacist suggested taking a homeopathic preventative instead. Every single one. I suppose you know the motto, go to Midas, get a muffler. But how can alternative medicine hurt you, I am always asked? What's the harm? Duh. Instead of being given an effective antibiotic that kills the malaria parasite, instead you take homeopathic nonsense. You take water, just plain water. Then if you get malaria, you might die instead. I don't know. The Darwin Awards notwithstanding, I don't think the price of stupidity should be death. But at least I learned something about malaria I didn't know. And I am a board-certified infectious disease doctor. How does homeopathic malaria prevention work? Quote, they make it so your energy doesn't have a malaria-shaped hole in it, so the malarial mosquitoes won't come along and fill that end, end quote. If these people aren't as dumb as a box of rocks, I don't know who is. What's the harm in homeopathy? Is death a good enough answer for you? Anyway, I had this insight the other day. I figured out a way to combine both the principles of homeopathy and therapeutic touch. This is my idea. You can't have it. I'm going to call it structural homeopathy, and here's how it works. So you got this headache, right? By the principles of homeopathy, like heals like, right? So what causes a headache? Getting hit on the head with a hammer. But I don't want to hit you on the head with a real hammer, because that might kill you, and dead people can't buy my product. So what I will do is I will take a hammer, specifically a northern industrial two-pound dead blow hammer. I love that term, dead blow, and that would cause a headache. 
and wearing special lever gloves, I will repeatedly remove 90% of the hammer. I will do that 30 times. In the end, it will weigh 2 times 10 to the minus 30 pounds when finished. And then, with that hammer, I will hit you on the head. But that's ridiculous, you say. How can hitting me on a head with a hammer that's so small there isn't even a molecule left of the hammer? Ask. The air remembers the hammer having been there. It's all due to the principles of quantum mechanics and the effects of entanglement. So when I hit you with the virtual hammer, the positive harmonic energy vibrations interact with the negative harmonic dark energy vibrations of the pain to cancel in the same way that matter and antimatter annihilate each other, with the result that the natural balance of the body is holistically restored. Sweet, huh? Now, if you've been paying attention to the seven rules of science, you know why this is bogus. I am now accepting appointments for this revolutionary therapeutic modality, by the way. However, I'm only accepting them psychically. That's the end. And that's a long one. 34 minutes. Maybe this should have been two podcasts, but I always say people go into infectious diseases because they love to hear the sound of their own voice. But that's the end of this podcast, an occasional review and rant on alternative medicine. Brought to you as a side project of thepusswear.com, where you will find the Persiflagers podcast, a bi-weekly review of infectious disease, where you can even get type 1 CME. Copyright 2006, Creative Commons. References are on the show notes and can be linked from www.quackcast.com. An old podcasts are archived there as well. Send your hate mail and spam and questions about quackery to knowitall at quackcast.com. I may answer it if I have the time. Feedback is always of great interest, both positive and negative. I wouldn't mind being accused of being a tool of the medical industrial complex if you see fit. The music is by my son when he was 12, improvising on the guitar. As it is December, I wish you all a non-denominational generic seasonal greeting. And now, if you will excuse me, I need to go get my homeopathied. 